Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time that the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Golly, we're an enthusiastic mob. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. What? It's, it's actually a pretty pathetic sort of a cheer squad thing, really, isn't it? It's, it I guess it's got to be that basic for us Aussies. But, but we Aussies, we love a winner. Uh, we probably don't give two hoots about the ordinary worker or the ordinary sports person or whatever, but as soon as someone becomes famous, as soon as they get that big win, as soon as they get recognised for something great, uh, all of a sudden, oh, they're an Australian now, no. They're one of ours, and, and we want the whole world to know so that they will know just how wonderful uh, sports people or whatever famous people we tend to be able to spawn. Um, even, if the, even if they happen to be a Kiwi, as long as they did something in Australia at some time, oh, they're Australians too. Um, and if a foreign sports star ha- has great potential, We'll bend over backwards to try and make it easier for them to get a visa and and easier for them to get expedited citizenship into Australia so that we can call them ours as well. Am I being a little bit cynical 
or is that actually the way it is? It's pretty much actually the way it is, I think. But then, as soon as a person is no longer a winner, we forget about them very quickly. Once again, they're a nobody. That is, unless they give us some other reason for to be famous, because we love the famous and we love a winner. And as I read the Bible reading for today, I realised, you know what? This isn't uniquely Australian. It's not. When Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he was probably a nobody, merely the son of a carpenter. And that Mary girl, you know that one that got herself pregnant before she was even married? And, and we know that Jesus did go unnoticed. And one day he went missing for a whole day and his own parents didn't even notice him missing. And we talked about that a few weeks ago because we read about how he was left behind in Jerusalem and, and they found him at the temple three days later. So he was sort of grew up as a nobody. But when Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, everything changed. When Jesus began his ministry in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he became famous. He, he kicked off his ministry in the region of Galilee and, and we're told that a report of him went throughout the surrounding country, right? And that means that the report of him would have made it to his hometown, Nazareth, which is in, in that region. Now, the Greek word that our Bibles translate as report, the Greek word is fame, from which we get our word fame. It is literally saying that Jesus became famous. And as Jesus went throughout the region, what he would do is he'd go to their synagogues. Now, what's a synagogue? A synagogue is like their local gathering place for, for, the, for their Jewish worship services. So there was only one temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. But most towns had a synagogue where the locals could meet to hear God's word and to pray and to worship, sort of like the Jewish version of a church. And Jesus taught in these places and he was being glorified by all. All right, so even so early on in Jesus's ministry, in the very early beginnings, people are, are lapping it up and they're glorifying him. Now, we Aussies, uh, we live in a culture that glorifies sports champions and we glorify movie stars and we glorify singers and bands and we glorify eco-warriors and we glorify folk who are famous, sometimes for no apparent reason. Some folk are just famous because they're famous. I, I think there's a new term that I don't understand because I'm too old of insta-famous. Does anyone even know what that means? I, I think that means you're famous for no apparent reason. And and our culture, we tend to glorify such people to such an extent that they are worshipped. But for us, as disciples of Jesus, we are not to worship people, no matter how famous they are. We don't glorify people. We reserve our glory to give to our God and him alone. Right? So early on in this stage, Jesus has become famous and obviously the news has reached the Nazarenes and they're really ready to get their share of their hometown hero. Now, the thing is, as we read this, usually we've come into it and we've sort of actually think, you know what, his hometown didn't like him at all. That's not true. 
at the early stages, he was still their hometown hero. It, it was like the same old thing, you know, he's one of us, you know. He, he, he's famous. He's one of ours. And it doesn't actually say this, but reading between the lines, we can see hints of the expectations that they had for him when their hometown lad was going to come home and what he was going to do when he got there. Now, what are those hints? Firstly, Jesus is given the opportunity to read the scriptures in the synagogue. You, you, you don't give that opportunity to anyone. That was reserved for, for the educated people or for those who were the special, the famous people, right? And secondly, he's also expected to teach at the synagogue. They don't give these opportunities to everyone. And so on the Sabbath day, Jesus did what he does when he comes to a town. He, he went to, this, to the local synagogue and he stood up to read and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And apparently he chose the bit that he was going to read, which wouldn't have been easy to find, by the way. They, they didn't have chapter and verse numbers back then, and so he'd have to be rolling through the scroll to find the place that he wanted to read from. But when he found the spot, he, he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And after he'd read that, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And at that point, the eyes of everyone in that synagogue were fixated on him now, when the prophet Isaiah wrote that, it was prophecy. It was something which was yet to happen. It, it was a message which is part of an, a larger overall message that he's giving to the, to the nation of Judah, who were at the time in captivity in Babylon. Why were they in captivity in Babylon? Because the whole of Israel, Israel and Judah, had rebelled against God and followed after other gods. The northern kingdom, Israel, had been punished by God and, and taken into captivity in Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, had been punished by God and taken into captivity into Babylon. So this is where they were when they received this message. And, and this section of Isaiah is setting forth a great vision of not only their return to Jerusalem, but it was something which was much greater than this. It was, it was a vision which, which comes through in the preceding chapters of how the whole world is going to be finding hope in Jerusalem. Now, we, of course, now know that was through Jesus Christ, that the whole world now finds hope in Jerusalem. But when Jesus read it, so when Isaiah read it, it was a prophecy. But when Jesus read it, once again, it was prophecy. But only it was prophecy that was currently being fulfilled in him, even as he read it. Now, after Jesus read it, his hometown crowd were on the edge of their seats, wondering, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And we're not told everything that he said. We're only told how he started. What he, what he began to say them, verse 21 says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now that statement, that, that's a pretty big call. What a bold statement. So let's go back to what Jesus read to understand what was fulfilled in their hearing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Yes, we know that. We, we talked about that, that last week or the week before when, when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. And then he went out filled with the Holy Spirit into the desert. And now, filled with the Holy Spirit, He's doing the teaching in the synagogues. And then we're told that he was anointed, but anointed to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. What's so special about the poor? Why is the good news for the poor? Now, good news, it's, announce, it's an announcement. Now, you think about when the announcements are made in our country, um, if the government makes an announcement, not usually is that going to be good news for the poor, is it? Um, they want to make an announcement that's going to be good news for the majority, and the majority are not the poor. Or often it'll be an, an announcement which is good for the government, and it'll actually be good for the rich. But this is something different that's happening here. The gospel... When the, when the gospel was preached, the early church very quickly discovered that the message was being received and believed, mainly by the poor, not so much the rich. And it was being received by those who were not very important, while the famous, not so much. And I suspect the reason for this is probably because the poor are very aware of their own need. Well, we the rich, we, we tend to get very self-confident in our own self-sufficiency. And we get filled with pride. And, and we generally like to be self-sufficient and, and self-righteous and self-determined in every way. Paul talks a bit about this when he wrote to the, to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians he says, "'For consider your calling, brothers.'" Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That means not many of you were educated. And he says, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, on the day of judgment, wealth counts for nothing. On the day of judgment, education counts for nothing. Fame counts for nothing. And this is why the gospel is good news for the poor. God chooses those who are insignificant. And in Christ, the poor become rich. Well, let me clarify what I mean by that. Now, sadly, and, and this makes me angry, there is a false gospel being preached today that changes the, the, the riches of the glory of Christ into a promise of earthly riches and earthly wealth. That, that is an obscene twisting of what God's word says. 
and of what God's word teaches and promises. And in many churches this very day, right across our land and right across the world, just before the offering's taken up, there'll be a message given along the lines of, you know, God's going to give back to you when you give to him. You know, if you put $100 into the offering, God will give you $200. If you put $1,000 in the offering, God will give you $2,000 back. What an obscene thing that is. An obscene grab for money, which is being dressed up as a spiritual get-rich-quick scheme. Now, I'm going to say to you today, do not ever donate money to Bush Disciples if your hope and your aim is to get material blessings back. We want no part in that. But if you love Jesus, and if you want to support the teaching of God's word in this place and other places, then give. But when we give to God, we do it the biblical way, which is to give sacrificially. Now, to give sacrificially means that we give and we give such that we're going we're gonna to notice it missing. That's what it means to sacrifice. I give up something that I'm going to miss. And we give expecting nothing in return. That's what a sacrifice is. So let's come back. Jesus was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. He didn't come to fleece them. He didn't come to, to make, I don't know, to just use them. He came to proclaim good news to them. Now the thing is, some of you might notice, but hang on a minute, Michael. The poor are absent from our churches today. Why? Is it, is it because the poor don't feel welcome in our churches? Is it because they don't feel good enough or because they just don't feel worthy? Is it because they don't feel they live up to what we are? Is it because we shut them out? Or is it just because the people who come along to church are the ones that we relate to in everyday life and we just don't relate with the poor? I don't know. It appears to me that the two biggest cohorts that are missing from Western churches today are the very rich and the very poor. The Western church has become thoroughly middle class. Of course, there's ranges in that. There's lower middle class, middle middle class, and upper middle class. But most folk in the Western Christian church today are what we would term middle class. And historically, this is an anomaly. This isn't normal. However, if we are to look at it from a world perspective and, and take it from a global perspective, we'll very quickly realise that the places where the gospel is best received with gladness and, and the Christian church is growing the fastest is amongst the world's poor. Some of the poorest nations in Africa and Asia is where the gospel is bearing the most fruit. And that's why I encourage you to, to support missionaries who preach the good news of Jesus in, in lands that are impoverished and into the third world. Now, it, it's not a very popular thing to say, but it's true. Even the poorest person in Australia, by world standards, are actually pretty well off. That we have all of the advantages of being able to have the support that we need. 
not so the world's poor. Let's move on. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel would celebrate what's called the year of Jubilee. Has anyone heard of the year of Jubilee? It's, it's in the Old Testament. So what is that? Well, every 50th year, there would be a Jubilee. And on that Jubilee, every slave would be released. Now, we, in our men's Bible study during the week, we talked about slavery. Um, and something I didn't... I forgot to bring up, I didn't think to bring up, was about this year of Jubilee. Um, and so in Israel, unlike any other nation, you, you wouldn't be a slave forever. So basically, if somebody found themselves in a place of poverty, they, they're bankrupt, they couldn't afford to pay their bills, they would sell themselves into slavery. But then on the 50th year, they would be free again. Now, it depended on how long it was until the year of Jubilee, how much you would pay for your slave, right? So basically, if you're only going to have, a, if it was only one or two years until, until they were going to be released, you wouldn't pay as much as if it was going to be 30 years before they're going to be released. You with me? But it wasn't only about slavery. Every piece of land, whether it be grazing land or whether it be farming land, Every piece of land on the year of Jubilee would revert back to its ancestral ownership. All right, so take me for an example. My mum and dad sold our farm. And from that point, it became highly unlikely that I or any of my descendants, poor descendants, will, will ever be able to afford to buy a workable size farm again. Once you've gotten out of land ownership, it's really hard to get back into it again. Now, that wasn't a problem in Israel. When a person bought a farm, essentially they weren't really buying freehold. What they were buying was a lease, really, because they knew at the year of Jubilee, that no matter how much they paid for that land and no matter when they paid for it, it was going to revert back to the ownership of the ancestral owners. All right? So... It would depend, once again, what you paid for the land would depend on how long it was until the year of Jubilee. And so, if it was going to be 49 years until the next year of Jubilee, you'd pay a fair bit for that block of land. But it was only going to be one year until the year of Jubilee, you probably mightn't even get a single crop off of it. And so you wouldn't pay that much for it. So you understanding how the year of Jubilee works? It, it was a marvellous system that God had put in place to give the poor a chance to climb out of intergenerational poverty. This is the curse of, of our world, is this intergenerational poverty. And, and in the, the year of Jubilee, gave a way around this. And the image that Isaiah is giving here in this prophecy is the image that Jesus is picking up which is that of a jubilee. Liberty to the captives. Liberty for the oppressed. That's what the jubilee was about. It, it was a year of hope, a year of joy. It was a year of, of promise for the better future and, and a year of release and freedom. 
And so Jesus read this. And he sat down and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that. And what Jesus was doing was he is proclaiming an era of salvation. The point at which Jesus stopped reading from Isaiah was mid-verse. Um, well, mid-sentence. It's, and it's the dividing line between the coming era of salvation and the coming judgment. It's the dividing line between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, which he was quoting, ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and this is the point at which Jesus stopped, and then it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So at this point, Jesus wasn't taking up the theme of judgment. That would come later. And he would teach about that later. But at this point, he is teaching about the grace of a jubilee-like era of salvation that is coming through him. That the captives would be released. The blind would see. And Luke doesn't actually tell us that much about what Jesus taught that day. But he does tell us how well it was received. And I don't know if you picked up on this point, but... At this point, his hometown are wrapped. Oh, verse 22 says that, that all spoke well of him, right? They loved the message that Jesus had given. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It was like wonderful, wonderful stuff. We love this. This is great. And they were amazed. Isn't that Joseph's son? Oh, what a message. We're living in this era of salvation. Now, for us... We understand that Jesus was talking about spiritual blessings. Salvation in Jesus is so much better than worldly blessings. Do you agree? Salvation in Jesus is so much better than worldly blessings. Do you agree? I'd like to see some bobbleheads happening at this point. Excellent. Very good. Preach it, brother. Oh, whew. I always wanted somebody to say that. Next time, a bit louder and more enthusiasm. Preach it, brother. Yeah, okay. Um, so for us, we know that, that this is what it's talking about. Why is, why is it good news to the poor? Not because the poor are going to get a heap of money and have a heap of stuff. It's good news to the poor because the poor are more mindful of their need and more open to receive what Jesus was offering. And therefore, they would have faith and be saved and enter the glories of heaven. How would the blind see? Well, yes, Jesus did heal a few blind men. But millions, tens of millions, who knows how many? would have their spiritual eyes opened and, and they would see their need for a saviour and they would see and begin to understand the things of God's kingdom and receive Jesus as Lord. How are the captives set free? Well, he wasn't talking about them being an occupied land, right? So you understand at this point, the Romans had come into their land, given them a jolly good flogging and then were basically 
oppressing them. And they had to pay taxes to the Romans and they had to do what the Romans said, etc., etc. So when Jesus was preaching release from the captives, he wasn't saying, you know, those wicked Romans, they're going to go away and leave you alone. That's not what he was saying. He was talking about how by the grace of God, we are forgiven of our sins and we are set free from sin and death. We understand this, don't we? We know that Jesus's message is about spiritual blessings. His home crowd did not. They were hanging out for the miracles. And Jesus must have known this because he answered them before they even questioned. And the mood changes just like that. Right? So at one point it's, wow, isn't this wonderful, wonderful, gracious teaching, loving it, coming from Joseph, son of all people. Woo! And it's like Jesus shoves a pin in the balloon. He says, doubtless you'll say to me, this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, all of the miracles that you've been hearing about, you want me to do them for you too. And it's like Jesus turns on them and deliberately needles them. And all I can put it down to is Jesus knows the person's heart. Matthew and Luke, um, when they give their account of this, they tell us that that the people of Nazareth took offence at Jesus' words. But Luke sort of fills it out for us a bit so that we can understand why they took offence at his words. It's because he told them, I'm not going to do any miracles for you. And Jesus gives two Old Testament examples of two prophets who did miracles for foreigners rather than for their own people. And Jesus is saying... I'm not going to put on a miracle show for you lot because that's all you want. You just want, you just want a dose of the fame. And when they heard that they weren't going to get any miracles, they were ropeable. It just went instantly from, wow, isn't this amazing, gracious stuff, to let's throw him off the cliff. It's just the change, just like that. And probably the only miracle that Jesus did in Nazareth that day was he strolled through the crowd who were trying to kill him. And he went on his way. So they were happy with his gracious teaching, probably because they thought that this was a prelude to the miracle show that would follow. Now, that's what happens in church, isn't it? Yeah, we, we sort of have the songs and then we have the, have the teaching and then, and, and then we have the miracle bit or whatever. But what upset them was he wasn't going to do the miracle show. They wanted to see their fellow Nazarene do his stuff on his home turf. And when we get to next week, we're going to see how the miracles are not the main game for Jesus. Jesus' purpose was to preach. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation looks for signs. And what we're seeing here is his hometown was just that. Now, for us, as disciples of Jesus, I'm going to ask a question. Are we signs and wonders junkies? 
where we just always need to have the next fix of miracles to help us be enthused. If so, we've missed the whole point. What is the point? The point is we are living in an era of salvation. That is the greatest blessing. To be set free from sin and death. To have our spiritual eyes open to see and know the Lord and to know of his kingdom. We're no longer a captive. No longer a captive to sin and death. But we're now living in a joyous new hope. That's the greatest blessing. To take part in this new era of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you came to proclaim good news to the poor. And Lord, we are so aware that we ourselves are needful of you. You came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Lord, we have been held captive by sin and death, and we thank you that by your death and resurrection, you set us free. You bring recovery of sight to the blind, and so we pray, Lord, open our eyes, Lord, to the things of the Spirit. Shift our focus from, from worldly things to the kingdom of God. Lord, you came to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What a blessing it is to live in this era of salvation. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your undeserved favour that saves us. We thank you that you would save us who do not deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.